I said the other night when we were talking about six perfections that uh, this evening I come round to the fifth of the perfections actually, which I didn't really talk about, which is the what's generally translated as the perfection of meditation. First of all, um, I'm probably on a question to the very word meditation, and I know that you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, <laughs> at the risk of boring you about it. Um, the word meditation really does not really do justice to the word that we're talking about in Sanskrit and Pali, which is the word Bahavana, which really means to bring into being and to cultivate. And I think when we hear it in those terms and we begin to take it into ourselves, that word cultivation and to bring something into being, then we can form an entirely different relationship with what I'm still, because I'm boring me, trapped within it myself, still going to call meditation. <laughs> One of those words we can't avoid. I mean, you see books abounding, don't you? How to meditate, learn how to meditate, and all the sort of stuff you see around. But what I want to say, or what I want you to hear, is the resonances of this different approach. This approach which is to cultivate, to make grow, to bring into being, to manifest something. And in the tradition, and the Tibetan tradition is no different, in the tradition we, we talk about samatha, bahavana, which is concentration, calmness, stillness, usually considered to be the preliminary of Vipassana Bahavana, which is insight. So when we start to hear it in terms of cultivation, then it becomes the cultivation of calm or concentrated states, the cultivation of insight or understanding. In other words, what I'm doing is working on bringing them into being, working in working on manifest them, working in embodying them, if nothing else, to actually to be insightful, to be calm and concentrated, rather than having something at the back of your mind which you're thinking about as a rather nice idea than anything else. And the danger is that can happen. Meditation, and I'm still using the word, so you know, please do hear it with resonances. Meditation is the key tool of Buddhist practice. Notice I will use the word tool. It's not an end in itself. As I said the other night, it's a means to something. It's a means to this manifestation of insight or calm. First of all, perhaps before I start to examine a more traditional form of meditation, hearing it with the term cultivation, perhaps we can also hear it in a much, much wider sense than the generally narrow way in which we usually approach the idea of meditation. I'm not saying for yourselves that for many, meditation can be just sitting on your cushion. It can be just doing your walking meditation. But, and this is the question, is it possible to make 
one's ordinary daily life itself the meditation now the answer I believe to that is yes but of course the thing that we're talking about cultivating here which is the, the cornerstone of all the practice is awareness about what we're doing if nothing else certainly if we get away from the samatha if we get away from the idea of cultivating calm states of mind getting concentration as soon as we get into the other realms of Buddhist meditation then we're starting talking about the cultivation of awareness and just as a phrase and one that I think might hold resonance for you is that the path that the Buddha sets us begins, the path to awakening begins with awareness and it progresses through awareness a deepening and expanding awareness perhaps I could use even another term here which is a deepening and expanding sensitivity in the hustle bustle, the hurly burly of ordinary life most of us have become desensitized in some way or another often in quite quite different ways through our work, through our history, through our traumas through our just being in the world we have desensitized ourselves in particular ways or become desensitized because of the exigencies of life this process of awareness, this expansion of awareness bringing it into the ordinary the minutiae of daily life is to re-sensitize us at a place like this we get the time to do that to go out into the garden into the beautiful surroundings to look, to listen, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch to become conscious of the rapid flow of thought the fleeting evanescent character of the mind which is changing continuously we get some time to do that in the day to day as I say hustle bustle of daily life we simply lose our awareness we are strung out often and I really do mean that we are strung out between possible futures and the past sometimes I feel like knocking and saying is there anybody home? <laughs> because that's where we usually are I mean the German philosopher actually has, Heidegger actually had a wonderful word for it he said we're always ahead of ourselves we're always projecting ourselves into the future not residing in the moment in the kind of eternity of the moment which is not you know, simply a culmination of the past and a projection of the future so we're just strung out between these two poles very, very rarely at home very, very rarely doing what we're doing very rarely even in the interrelationship 
in the simple conversation and the simple talk that we engage in being with the person who you're talking to. The situation also often arises, perhaps, where you know, you're thinking of the replies before the person has finished talking. So there isn't an open space there. There is very little awareness of the other. You have not opened to the other. So this is also about the quality of all of our relationships. Awareness is about the quality of all of our relationships in the world. It's not just about cultivating a rather nice, funny feeling that might come about in various you know, closed-eye situations when you're sitting here. It's about developing this real in-depth engagement with the world. That means real in-depth engagement with the so-called boring tasks in the world. The things that have to be done. Life is repetitive. There is no doubt about that. But it's not the same. Simply because it's repetitive doesn't mean it's the same. We might repeat doing the washing up. I'm sure a lot of you had a lot of experience over that over the last week, doing the washing up, cleaning the house. These are repetitive tasks, but they're never the same. Only the mind fixes them, holds them, and they become boring. They lack any joy, vibrancy, meaning for us. So this awareness that we bring into daily life is the true form of meditation, to use that word. The cultivation of this absolute engagement with the world. The discovery, which might surprise us, which I mentioned, I know, the other day, a few days ago anyway, of the underlying joy behind as much of what we do. The underlying wondrousness of what we do. Also the humour sometimes behind what we do. The ludic nature of the kind of things we engage in. The ludicrousness of it. I mean, actually, meditation to yourself. If you actually look, if you had a kind of picture of yourself sitting there, <laughs> like this, it seems very funny. <laughs> we engage in this artificial situation to try and develop a natural attitude towards the world. <laughs> but we've become so unnatural in our behaviours often that we have to almost go to the other extreme to do that <laughs> to engage in this natural attitude towards the world this natural engagement with the world so I think we have to cease seeing meditation practice as being simply about sitting in beautiful rooms like this. But see it in terms of spreading out from this kind of practice that we engage in into those day-to-day -day activities. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I have you know, no hesitation in doing so from previous talks I've given the other night. Unless that spreads out Unless it diffuses into the world, into our everyday ordinariness, our work situations, our home situations, full of the chaos, 
that they often are, then it's meaningless. And I really do mean that. It becomes meaningless. It becomes a hobby. <laughs> That's all. I go away to retreat centres for my holiday and I do half an hour a day as a hobby. <laughs> it can become as silly as that. <laughs> it really can. And we can end up again falling into our Christian background of treating it as something highly, highly special. Now, the other thing we do is a too pious reverential attitude often towards it. We don't need to be pious, we don't need to be reverential towards it. Because if it's on the level of the everyday, yes, we don't have to be pious and we don't have pious kind of holier than thou (laughs) with it. And we don't have to be overtly reverential towards it. And I always suggest bring a little bit of impiety to what you're doing. You know, a little little, um, lack of reverence for it. Because then it puts it on the level of the ordinary. And again, that phrase I used the other night with that Tibetan Lama who I mentioned years ago who I came over to the westward he said, you put you know, spiritual practice up there and life down there. Well, it's getting the balance, bringing them into some kind of dynamic interrelationship. Well, actually the one interferes the other, and they're not seen as separate. They are not compartmentalised. We have a wonderful, wonderful propensity for compartmentalising things. You know, for bracketing them in. Oh, this is the time to do this, and this is the time to do that, and I can't mix the two. So in true meditative practice, then we learn to bring the two closer and closer and closer and closer together until any kind of this is life and this is meditation dissolves. And that's really, really important for it to be a genuine cultivation practice. To genuinely cultivate it in our (coughs) ordinary situations, in the office, in the chaotic, sometimes, situations in your daily life. To put it at the heart of that. Now, when I say the impious is like the irreverent, what I mean by that is also, you know, expect to fail and give yourself the permission to fail in your awareness project sometimes. You know, we talk, you know, perhaps there's a very wrong word to use actually. When I talked the other night, I was talking about the perfection. And I started off tonight mentioning about the perfection of meditation, the perfection of cultivation. Well, we're less than perfect at this stage. And let's just hold up our hands and admit it. <laughs> you know, so we're going to fail. Yet, having given ourselves the permission to fail, and that means, what I mean by this is, is not just sort of kind of letting things go and not putting effort into it, but sometimes you'll have the good intention, but the good intention goes awry. It somehow gets lost. You're pulled back into habit. You're pulled back into your ordinary ways of relating and reacting and you lose awareness. You lose that ground of awareness. 
that you've patiently cultivated often. And you're back in the same situation again, back in Sangsara, as we haven't really left it. You're back in that Sangsara situation, but that's fine. That's absolutely okay. The next moment is another opportunity. And I think you have to keep remembering that. The failure is there, it teaches us. Sometimes actually we only know we're on the path when we get lost and wander off it. Have you ever had that situation? You, you've lost the path because you somehow wandered off into a thicket. And you have to sort of come back and then you realise you're actually on the path. So you discover something about this wandering away, this falling into unawareness again. And those are important experiences. Now, in the East, we don't have guilt. We don't talk about guilt. In these languages in which the Buddhist canon was constructed, whatever they, you know, whichever particular languages they were, Sanskrit, Pali, Tibetan, Japanese and Chinese, until the advent of Christianity in the 19th century, these languages never possessed a word which was the equivalent to guild. But what they did possess, and it's quite important, I think it's important, perhaps it sounds a heavy word, but it isn't, is the word shame. One could feel ashamed of what you do, but it's instantaneous. Guilt is like a lead weight, and you carry it around with you. You know, you do something in the past, and you you make a mistake, for example, on even in doing just the ordinary things of life. You make a mistake, and you feel guilty about it. And there it is, sitting like an incubus on your shoulder, going, <laughs> 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 yeah, and it's there with you, pointing that finger at you continuously. <laughs> now, give it permission to go <laughs> and amuse itself elsewhere. Because there's no need for you to carry that around with you at all. Shame works just as well. In having that instantaneous feeling that you don't carry around with you. Shame can bring you to the awareness, for example, of the next moment I'll try to do better. The next situation I will try to implement what I know. So, awareness, which is the ground of all meditative practice, and particularly you know, the practice we've been doing over this week, and what I've been really stressing now for a day and a half with you, and will continue for the next day and a half, this coming into the state of calm, awareness, the, the, the still calm place from which you can observe what's going on. Now this is not the end of Mahamudra, but we are actually beginning the proper Mahamudra practices. Yeah. When you begin to experience some calm, which you then utilise. The calm, as I said, is not an end in itself, it's only a tool. It's a tool to get you to a place wherein you can watch the thoughts and see that those are not you. So awareness 
here is not consciousness. Awareness is not consciousness. Consciousness is full of our discursive chatter, full of our discursive thought. The chattering mind, which often is termed in you know, Buddhism the monkey mind, that's leaping all over from branch to branch continuously. So awareness is what allows even that to take place. That allows the, the chattering, discursive mind to be in the first place. So it underlies it. Now I'll talk some more probably tomorrow night a little bit about that, you know, to kind of finish off some of the more um, theoretical bases of what we've been doing over the week. But perhaps not tonight, because I want to make kind of more general remarks about the meditative process, even in talking about the perfection of meditation as it's conceived within the Mahayana path. The thing, of course, we discover when we access awareness is stillness. Unlike that continuous panoply of images, thoughts, tunes even, from your <laughs> that we get coming through our minds, images of, I don't know, films we've seen, all sorts of things come and go. Yet the ground of awareness itself is still. It's not moving in that way. So, one of the practices we did, remember, was looking at our thoughts as kind of wondrous things. What on earth going on? There's all this stuff happening here. These thoughts have a kind of wonder of their own, a sort of joyousness at the base of them, if only we don't take them too seriously. If only we don't take them too seriously and invest them with too much power. What we have is thoughts which we kind of pump up (laughs) and inflate them into things that they're bigger than they are. So, the ground of awareness is still what the discursive mind is not. And the Mahamudra practice gradually, gradually takes us into, increasingly, into that still ground. So that we begin to identify much more with the awareness rather than with the thought. Now, in Mahamudra I have a saying, which is to be happy with whatever appears to one with whatever appears to one. Be that thought or what you see, to, in other words, to dwell in that stillness which is unshakable, which is also joyous as well. Now this doesn't mean to be disengaged and detached. You know, that's a word that's often banded around in Buddhist circles, which is a word I, I really, really quite dislike, which is this idea of detachment. <laughs> You know, kind of Buddhist detachment, sort of standing back, you know, the glazed expression. <laughs> Actually, I had a wonderful, um, this is a digression, but I had a wonderful phrase. I, I, met, I met a character once in, um, when I was in India, um, and he was actually, now he'd been in India, and I met him in Sri Lanka, and um, he was describing meditators who he'd seen up at Mount Abu. Um, I don't know if you know this place, there's a big giant centre in, in Mount Abu, but it's also there's quite a lot of other meditation traditions going on around there. 
And this is how we don't want to end up. I said to him, what was it like? Have you been to this particular meditation center? He said, well, he was Australian, so you have to imagine the Australian accent. He said, I saw lots of fellows walking around looking like they had their brains sucked out through their eyes. <laughs> now, that's, now that's how we don't want to get. That's perhaps being a little too detached. You know, we... What the situation, the, the, the very dynamics of the meditation I'm talking about is the very opposite of that. It's not the kind of you know, brain sucked out through the eyes or the, or the detachment, the coolness. It's this almost passionate engagement with what's going on. If you really, really want to see what is, and that's what the Buddhist tradition all of them talk about, Mahamudra is no, no different from any of those traditions. Perceiving what is, that requires all of you with no residue left over. There are no bits left over. That means the demanding of the whole of you both in terms of your embodiment and your mental and cognitive processes. Two. So it requires the whole of you. Not just bits, not just a mental bit not just the physical bit, but the whole parcel engaged in practice. As a consequence of that, one of the things I always, again, particularly in Tibetan circles, actually not so much in, in, in sort of the pastoral circles, but particularly in Tibetan circles, I tend to warn, warn people, please do not leave your brain at the door of the meditation room. You know, bring it in with you in what you're doing. So, question what you're doing. So that's very much part of the process, to actually question what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and some of the meditations, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, require you know, quite a lot of analysis, too. And in the Vipassana tradition, as well, particularly in its higher reaches, it requires analysis. It requires a lot of actual thought processes, but directed thought. Not the kind of discursive chatter that we're engaged in, really, really directed thought. Directed at objects like the self. You're not going to convince yourself, remember what I was saying the other night, you're not going to convince yourself that there is not a self until you try to track it down in every possible place that it might be, you know, where it might be. So it's important that you, you know, you keep your intelligence as well when you engage in meditative processes, be from whatever the tradition they are, and that you don't just leave you know, the brain outside the door when you enter in. In this ground of awareness which I talked about, that's so important, and I think within all of the traditions, I don't want to make any particular distinction, there's a distinction in terms of technique, I think, more often than goal in the various meditative traditions of the Buddhist tradition, of all the Buddhist traditions. That what's aimed at is not just that stillness, but remember the freedom from captivation. The freedom from being captured 
by your habit. Even captured, need one say, by the, the pictures that our languages throw up about you know, the world. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but each of our languages, particularly our European languages, all have a metaphysics embedded in them, which leads us to a picture of the world. Just using Westerner again for a second, you know, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein once said he thought that the notion of the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> and the reason why he said that was because all of our languages, our Indo-European languages, they're all from the same root, all work on the basis of subject and predicate. And there are subjects to which there are predicates attached. You know, predicates of experience, for example, if we're talking about the self. You know, the self feels joyful, or it feels sad, or it feels happy, or you know, all the various things that we attach to saying about the self, ourselves. But, this picture holds us captive in a particular way because we think there's something substantial to which all these experiences attach to. Don't we? However, there are phrases in English, and in German and in French, for example, whereby we're not led into searching for the subject of the predicate. Now this might sound very technical, but this gives you a very easy example. It is raining. Do I go around looking for the it? However, if I say, I am happy, you feel there's something really substantial there to the I. So they both work on the same logic of language, and it gives us a picture. And I'm only saying that as one example of the kinds of awareness that we have to bring to even our linguistic processes that are involved in giving us a picture about the world. So, coming back to where I started, when we talk about perfection of wisdom in Mahayana, perfection of wisdom is usually coupled with the perfection of meditation as well. Because wisdom is the, is the arrival out of the meditative process of the understanding that there is nothing substantive underlying the processes. There is only that word that I talked about, and I won't go into it again tonight, <coughs> there is only Shinyata. But Shinyata leaves the world entirely in place. Because it only says how the world is not rather than how it is. Now, I don't know if you understand that and have got that clear, but it's very, very important that we don't mistake, you know, Shinyata, emptiness, as being a something. It's an emptiness at the heart of what we believe to be there. In other words, we bring a mental attitude towards things which sees them as substantive, as being, well, let's say, just use the word, as possessing an essence which makes them what they are. All Shinyatar says that doesn't exist. The world is not that way. It's dependent arising. 
In other words, everything depends on something else. Yeah. I think my language has an awful lot more importance than I've actually realised until now. Particularly mm-hmm. English, who is saying we use something now. Mm-hmm. And that absolutizes the relatives. Yeah. And it really gives it a concreteness that whenever I've been trying to describe what happens in my meditation to someone, I'm really struggling for words because I'm in meditation, I'm working at a level that doesn't have words. It mm. isn't giving me labels. Mm. Um, and I'm only, only just beginning to realize just how important that linguistic framework is, that it, it puts my world into um, a structure that I, I really struggle to, to move away from at times. Yeah. And the chance you, you had us do earlier today the translation I've read of that is the dual at the heart of the letter. It sounds very substantive. Yeah. It sounds as though there is a concrete And when you're trying to look at something like an author or Senator or however you want to call it, then that, that there is also phrases, aren't there? And that's just the, the quick the idea of the, the jewel in the lotus. Mm. That's being shown to be a very, very bad translation mm. of it. It's virtually untranslatable and it's corrupt Sanskrit as well. Um, so it actually doesn't really have a meaning. Like most mantras shouldn't have a meaning as such. Uh, even if they did, they've got a lot in the midst of time and they're highly, highly symbolic too. But coming back to your main point, which is about the, the language, I think that's absolutely right. This is what you become aware of, that our language solidifies the world so much. It solidifies, as you say, the meditative, if you try to discuss your meditative experiences, it solidifies them. Or just if you want to talk about your emotions, for example. Um, I mean, I presume most people have had this experience of some sort. When you try to talk about your inner experience, you feel somehow untruthful about what you're saying. Because it doesn't capture it. There's always something which hasn't been caught by this net of language that's involved. So it's, we're, we're, we're losing the, the core of our experience. Now, the other side of that, of course, is that language is also presenting us a particular picture of reality, which we often buy into such as you know, the notion of self, I mean, that's one particular example, but there are many, many others. And it looks very strange, doesn't it, when, because we simply lack a language of process. Um, and when we try to do that in English, um, particularly in English, it looks very strange. Um, you can do it a little bit better with some languages by compounding. In German you can do it by you know, turning nouns into verbs and this sort of thing. But it still looks odd. You know, instead of world, we have worlding. <laughs> um, but it somehow gives us a bit more of a resonance about the way things are. But that, the fact that we are so enmeshed and so embedded in language in all terms of our ordinary experience means that we can't take it for granted. And that's part of our growing awareness as well when I talk about extending our awareness into ordinary life is the awareness of the language that we use and the way it holds us captive. There was a note upstairs that said, 
Yes. Yes, the idea of language kind of deconstructing itself <laughs> after a while. <laughs> I remember on my course, um, uh, one of my university courses, um, was doing the deconstruction and linguistics. And um, I can't remember who said it, but there's a nice quote that um, sums up the difficulty of expression, the of language. And it was um, poetry is what's lost in translation. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Hmm. Well, I give you, can I give you a very cynical version of that from a from Jacques Lacan, the um, French psychoanalyst? He says, "You never mean a word you say." <laughs> 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 The interesting question about that is, is whether that's language also, that we perhaps have a very narrow idea of what language is in being just a spoken, but we, in a sense we're always communicating, aren't we, when we're together, whether we can speak the same language or not. There is, you know, kind of a recognition of certain human facial gestures, for example, which gives us a clue or key into the other. And whether that is a language in itself is you know, with awareness, for example, we can read another's face without them necessarily um, their words coinciding with what's going on in their facial gestures. You know, you could say, you know, somebody can say, you know, how do you feel? And, you, and they say, oh, I feel perfectly all right. And yet their face is saying something completely different. Yeah, and all sorts of other signs of language as well, which are important, which again, awareness, this is key to it, awareness can give us insight into it, because tone, the very tone of language itself, is a giveaway. When, the mer- we are, when for example, the words mean one thing, yet the tone completely disenfranchises what's being said. You know, how do you feel today? I feel fine. <laughs> That's a very extreme example of it. But, you know, we get that all the time, but we don't listen enough. We don't see enough. We don't hear, really, what's going on. And, you know, coming back to the theme, which is the theme of meditation and awareness, this perfection of it, then it means this engagement whereby you do are sensitised to reading those kind of signals, hearing what's going on below 
social gestures below the, the very words which say one thing but are completely undermined by the other. What happened has happened. It also has a, a, a kind of imprint in your continuum of consciousness. You, know, you can't forget that something happened. That would be denial, it would be repression. Generally, what happens with really unpleasant things trauma and grief and death and all sorts of stuff that you know, do invade our consciousness eventually is that. We hold on to them. We do that inflation that I was talking about, where we still continuously hold on to this thought. We magnify it, it becomes intense, it becomes like a superating wound to us. Whereas this is coming into the relationship with what is a genuine relationship which allows it to be. It's happened. Grief is not wrong. Buddhism, you know, I say this detachment. People often get the idea, well, you know, all Buddhists have to be kind of stoical about it. Not true. You know, just, you know, Buddhists within traditional countries, no matter, you know, how deep their practices grieve as much as others. I've seen, you know, for example, within households where a great teacher has died and the monks are distraught. I mean, the, the Arahats, when the Buddha died, were quite upset about the event. Um, yeah, the difference is they don't hold on to it. They grieve and let go. That's the difference. So it's coming into a different relationship with the event, whereby it's still acknowledged, but it's not magnified, it's not held on to, it's not inflated, given power, in the same way. So it can be allowed to, to go. 
but it's still part of your history. If trauma has happened, it's still part of your history. But it's acknowledged part of history. It's a kind of dealt with part as well. Now, the, actually, there's not so much on, on, the, on the trauma side, but I think there's a kind of funny story in the, in the Zen tradition, which um, I think exemplifies the idea of how we hang on. Um, because the, the story in the Zen tradition is about a monk who is standing by the side of a river, and this woman wants to get across the other side, and she can't get across the other side. And so he picks her up and carries her across. And this other monk who's with him gets to the other side. He says, how can you do that? You've just broken your vows. How can you do that? And they're walking on as they come to the side. He's still going on. I can't believe how you could have done that. You could have carried that woman across this river. You know, breaking your zinnia vows. And then he goes on about this for ages and ages and ages. And the monk who carried the woman says, look here, I carried her across, but you're still carrying her now. <laughs> So it's how we carry it. It's astonishing, isn't it? And I, I don't know if you can, you know, Suzanne's example, but it's astonishing how little can upset us and create disequilibrium. You know, from somebody putting the cup in the wrong place. I always put it there! <laughs> Have you noticed that? I mean, it might be, I don't know, toothbrushes and toothpaste tubes and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, this sense of security we've got to have, where everything's got to be in its right place, for us to have this sense of identity and feeling safe in the world. And, I mean, the sad part about it, in a way, is, is there is no safety. <laughs> there is no safety, and it's kind of coming to the wisdom. Um, I think Trumper talks about it, I mean, uh, Trevor Trumper, who is the yeah, um, Kagyu teacher who died quite a number of years ago, but he used to talk about the wisdom of insecurity. Because that's all we have, is the insecurity. That's all. And somehow we've got to learn to live with the insecurity, be aware of it, and go on living anyway. Um, despite that somebody's moved your cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. um. I can't remember if there's a book called Wisdom and Insecurity or not. Right, right. Wisdom and No Escape. Wisdom and No Escape, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Penetrating, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's some kind of idea that's around, in, in particularly in the Mahamudra tradition, that there is. There is no security. That's it. <laughs>
Well, part of the problem is no word for emotion in these languages either. <laughs> um, there's no, no actual direct literal word for them. I mean, you can put a number of words together um, out of Pali, Sanskrit, and Tibetan, and you'll get something which approaches to the word emotion. But you see, they don't reify the kind of feelings that we have in the same way within these cultures. Um, the closest you'd get would be something like that, kind of inflated thought, yeah. I mean, I love the one for the ego, by the way. It's, uh, it's nage in Tibetan, which means the I is king. <laughs> you know, that's how central you feel. <laughs> in this. But no, there's no particular, there's no direct word for emotion. So it's often quite a problem in talking about emotion language in these traditions. That's not to say they don't have what we would now call the theory of the emotions, but it's just not as explicit as you, as you would find, for example, in Western psychological literature. Yeah, no. When Yeah, there's both forms of training. Um, I mean, particularly on some of the really strict samatha training, you can actually train the mind to, you know, for example, hold an object really, really one-pointedly where discursive thought doesn't come in. Um, so, you know, that's awful actually to be with them sometimes because they say, "Oh, getting that kind of level of concentration really easy." <laughs> <laughs> you go, "What?" <laughs> Um, but I say, you know, if you do it for 14 hours a day, <laughs> trying to hold an object, you can get it perfectly. Um, so it's the idea, yeah, that you can hold an object perfectly. But bear in mind that is not an end, as I keep saying. Even if you can do that, and within a certain tradition, this idea of samatha, of that kind of samatha, holding the object completely without any discursive chatter, is only stage one. It's your tool you've now got your tool to then go on and do something else with. And if you think it's an end in itself, then you're kind of highly misguided. Mm-hmm. Which, um, 
Well, that's exactly the, that's exactly the Buddhist critique of some other meditational traditions. Is that what is the point to it? I mean, if you just have a blissful state, um, samadhi, then you know, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> you know, why? Well, I, you know, I just like feeling blissful, but you know, that's not really the point of what Buddhism is about, as you probably gathered. It's about this notion of awakening oneself and and seeing things as they are. Now, being in a blissed-out state with your eyes closed, with the world going on around you, is not the point of Buddhism. As I said tonight at the beginning, it's about this engagement, this absolute engagement with the ordinary, ordinary daily things of life, in an awakened way. So, as Krishnamurti used to be very fond of saying, you know, um, he was always pointing out the kind of uh, absurdities of the meditative tradition sometimes. You know, where, for example, you might be sitting in the Himalaya with your eyes closed all the time, really concentrated, and there's these wonderful mountains around you. <laughs> these incredible scenes. There. And there you are with your eyes closed, really going like this, you know, concentrating. And so there's something quite, quite ludicrous about it. So one has to, I think, learn to, and I think the point of what he's saying is to see meditation as a lot, lot wider. And that really is the essence of Buddhist tradition anyway, and particularly in the Tibetan thing. You're seeing it in a much, much wider scope. A really funny story that um, I always remember Nilambe, which is the meditation centre in Sri Lanka, that I spent quite a bit of time on. Um, the teacher there um, decided that he wanted everybody in the meditation centre, everybody, to do some practice, some sitting practice every day. This included the 70 year old gardener who worked in the garden, and he'd never done any meditation in his life, but he dutifully trekked along to his. Uh, meditation sessions, and he tried it for, I think it was about for a month or six weeks or something, and he went to see Godwin, who was the, the meditation instructor there, and said to him, um, you know, this isn't about meditation. He said, every time I sit down, no matter how hard I concentrate, I see cabbages. Potatoes. And things like that. And Godwin said, well, go away and try it again. And he came back again and said, Still find something out here. Cabbages and cauliflowers and potatoes and a few turnips now. <laughs> and Godwin just said in the end, that's obviously your meditation. You'd better go out and just do it. Because <laughs> that's, that's your concentration, that's your engagement in doing that, being with it. You don't need to sit in the formal way. <laughs> No, they don't. Jhana no. tradition, the talk about jhana is very much within Theravada tradition, usually. Um, although it is utilised in some form of Mahayana but, uh, um, material in talking about samatha particularly. Um, but no, in Mahayana tradition they don't get into all that. Remember what I said in my opening remark the other night, you probably don't, um, you know, a week ago today. <laughs> was actually the Mahamudra tradition, as, as with the Dogchen tradition and some of the Chan traditions, 
was a kind of rebellion against um, the scholarly um, distinctions that were often made. And there was a, a feeling in general, I mean, I don't want to go into detail about it because it's all rather historical, there was a, a sort of feeling around that the monasteries and the monastic institutions in detailing out all the, yeah, well, you go this level of jhana and you must reach this level of access concentration to get this and for this to happen and, and it goes on and on and on and you get to get lists and lists and lists and, and you can if you look at some of these palm material in Pali and see it's just great lists of stuff that you do this and you do that and you get this and you get that and you got this and you get that and you know, it goes on and on and on and it was kind of rebellion against the um, kind of stiff neck pompousness of it um, that people ended up kind of writing lists rather than doing anything. <laughs> um, so when you hear, you know, when you look at the Mahamudra tradition and the uh, Dzogchen tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, it lacks that kind of technical apparatus to describe what's happening. It uses much more what I call mythopoetic language, the language of mythology and poetry, to describe the experiences much more. So one of the ones I've you know, mentioned to you again over the course of the week, I can't remember exactly when, but the idea of the mirror or the sky, that's the other, the sky-like metaphor that's often used. As vast as the sky and the thoughts are just the clouds and the clouds are not the nature of the sky. And it's this sort of language that's used to describe the experiences within Mahamudra and even there found wandering by this tradition. So there's a deliberate attempt to disinvest the, the kind of technical jargon of British meditation. Okay. I can read somewhere that there's all these kind of progressions that you go through with one point in this and simplicity and non-meditation and all those things as well. It varies, it varies from, you know, even the Mahamudra tradition is, is homogenous. There are various ways of approaching it. And the Spectrum tradition does use that kind of approach, particularly in the Galupa school, they do that. But again, the Galupa school is a very scholarly school. You won't find that language used in the Kanji tradition, for example. Um, can you explain a bit about what, I'm not sure I'm understanding it right, is Rajasana Prime. Is that Prime? In relationship to the Okay, yeah. Well, it's, it's mm, again, it's kind of over-investing. The, the idea, I think this is what you're meaning, is the idea that one um, develops these things, but then, again, holds on to them in a particular way, whereby it becomes egotistical. So, it's not the actual perfection at all. It's a kind of mode where you're on the path towards the perfection, and you reify it and hold on to it at a particular stage and say, I've got there. So it's a kind of mistaken idea. And then it's an ego enhancement rather than the actual thing itself. So, for example, the perfection of generosity, the movement towards perfection of generosity might include oh, the pride of now I am being generous at one stage. Now I am being patient. What they talk about and this is the other side of it, is of course that these states, when they are real states, are spontaneous. There is no I thought attached to it at all. So there's no pride in it. There can't be pride because there's no I 
in the action. So it's the opening out into spontaneous action that occurs when they really are developed. So it's, it's a fault, if you like, on the progression that happens. And you get this all throughout the past. You Yes, Conscious, yeah, consciousness is the repository of thought. Um, the classic example in, in the classic definition of it in Buddhism is always that consciousness has an object. Uh, and that object is an object of thought, obviously. So anything which is a thought is consciousness. Anything that allows us to be conscious in other words, is the ground of awareness. The difference between consciousness and awareness is within consciousness there is also the thought of I within it. And that's the main difference between the two. In awareness there is no thought of I. Whereas the I, you know, the, what we would call the ego, it's not the word they use in Buddhism, but the I itself is part of the conscious activity. It's a necessary, it's a necessary resultant of the activity of consciousness that it has the I there. Whereas awareness doesn't have that, because awareness, if you like, allows it to be conscious in the first place. So it's a ground which allows all the other mental activities to take place. And that's really the difference between the two. Yep. Yeah. 
recognise them enough and mm. you go, oh, that's what happened, because that's yet another thought. Mm. So you, you kind of watch it, but I mean, incredibly mm. happy. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of what we've done so far, we, at the stage that we're doing in the meditations that we're doing, are still involved with thought. We haven't moved beyond that at all. Because even when I say to you, um, try to see your thoughts without concept, that's a thought. <laughs> Isn't it? It's the application of a thought to it. So at this stage, we're still using thought at a lesser level than the identification with the actual thought. So trying to see thought non-conceptually is simplifying the thought processes itself. Now, perhaps on Saturday, I'll give you a taste of, or at least give you the instructions about what goes on for what they call the ultimate goal of Mahamudra, which is the meditation of meditation, where there's no effort required at all, whereas all the things we're doing require quite a lot of effort at this stage. Um, but I'll hold that as a kind of tempting note, kind of who done it <laughs> of the meditation world. <coughs> Pardon? What danger? <laughs> yep. And the whole point about this at this stage is that it's bringing you into a different relationship with those thoughts. That's got to be the first stage. You can't suddenly leap into um, this other arena. Um, you've got to take it, you know, the matter of, despite the kind of rhetoric of immediacy that they use and, and, and fast tracking towards awakening, you, it's still progressive. You still have to build it up. And what we've had is a kind of crash course in building it up over the week, where we've got to a point now where you can then start to take it further, but you've still got to stabilise yourself within these meditations, within the, the processes that we're engaged in at the moment. How long would that process be in Oh! <laughs> oh, you're talking about long about, I mean the minimum that I've seen done on this kind of thing is usually three months, usually three months, and doing kind of 16 hours a day. What was yeah. that for the, for the day? Or yeah. That? yeah. But, you know, that's true of most of these traditions. You know, it's, it's talking about Vipassana. You know, to do a proper Vipassana retreat is very intensive, very intensive. I mean, the kind of nearest you get to a taste of some of this in the West, it's something like Goenka's retreat, which some of you might have done. Um, you know, the Burmese tradition, where it's very disciplined, lots of sitting, no distractions, and you just get on and do, do that. 
but you know, a shock to the system. You have to build your way up into it. <laughs> no, Any more questions? Because I want us to do 20 minutes of meditation. Maybe. Please come to the Well, I'm going to talk more about meditation tomorrow night. Perhaps I'll do that tomorrow night because I'm going to talk about that and the Brahma Vihara, which is an important part. But the main, the main, the main difference. Well, it depends on what tradition. When we talk about the partner, it means different things to different traditions. Some of them are generally some agreement about, and I'll mention that one. It's generally the idea of attaining concentration and calm through concentration. That's the broad definition of it. So it's usually involved in focusing on an object, often the breath as an object, of concentration, whereby you try to decrease the discursive chatter, in some traditions to actually eliminate the discursive chatter altogether. Now within the Theravada system there are all kinds of meditation objects that you can use, from coloured discs to the breath to Buddha statues to all sorts of things as your object of concentration. The Vipassana tradition within, well, gosh, if I take the Tibetan tradition and, and say some of the Theravada traditions, there's a vast disparity of meaning about what Vipassana can mean. Generally, it means the cultivation of insight. Now, as you can gather, the cultivation of in- insight as a phrase can cover a multitude of sins. <laughs> or virtues, <laughs> I should say. Um, now, I'll give you an extreme example. Within some of the Sri Lankan and, um, and Thai advancement traditions, this means bare attention. Just literally, in hearing, just hearing. In smelling, just smelling. In touching, just touching. And being aware of that just going on without the labelling process, without the cognitive process going on. That's one very quick sketch. In the Tibetan Galupra tradition, in which I was schooled in, it was six hours of debate a day. That was called Vipassana. It wasn't actual formal sitting practice. It was actually getting out of the debate courtyard and, and basically engaging in one-to-one debate for a minimum of six hours a day. Uh, and that was called Vipassana, because it was about developing insight. <laughs> Which is the easiest? Which is the easiest? (laughs) (laughs) None of them are easy. (laughs) I can tell you what was the most enjoyable. (laughs) And that was debate. (laughs) Debate was highly enjoyable. Um, But, you know, in the higher reaches, it's not easy. By any means. Well, there's all kinds of different types of debates. There's group debate. Mostly it's one to one. One person sitting, one person standing. One person depends. The person who sit defends uh, a particular position, and the person who stands up attacks it. And you're allowed to intimidate if you're not. Yeah. You, you scowl, <laughs> clap your hands, <laughs> wave your rosary in front of their faces. <laughs> No, no, they're equal. You'll be, you'll be your classmate. Oh, yeah. 
at the same level of studying as yourself. And the whole point about it is that somebody who's good and defending a position um, isn't swayed by all the intimidation that you're allowed to tell me. You shout at them, you do all sorts of things. And very funny story, to finish off on a funny story. When I was living in the March, we had some people come down from Tibet to visit one of the big monastic universities where I was studying. And they'd never been before, and they saw the debate courtyard and quickly ran to the head of discipline of the monastery and said, there's a fight going on! <laughs> <laughs> and it was just the monks debating. I mean, they're, they're great fun to them debates. I mean, they really are good fun. Yeah. When you have group debates, you you have one person who sits down and anybody within the monastery can actually um, attack you. And they're literally pushing each other out of the way to get <laughs> they're attacking. And um, they're not kind. I mean, you think of Buddhist monasteries as being kind. If you actually lose the debate, all the monks scream at you, you're finished, get off. <laughs> it's not a kind process in the slightest. <laughs> anyway, having said that, I think we should uh, do 15 minutes of practice to finish off the day and at least calm out as good as mine. <laughs> <coughs>